If you have your Bible this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We're talking today about the, the God who is untamed, the untamed God. Who is the untamed God? He is the God who is pro-women. You ever have an aha moment? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? You've been going through life and you think you, you kind of have a handle on stuff and then there's this aha moment. Uh, when I was growing up, I didn't eat cheese. I went to the Borden Cheese Factory when I was in, uh, just a little boy. And w- at Borden's, I smelled this nasty stuff. And I said, what is that? And they said, it's cheese. I think it was in the third grade. I didn't want to eat macaroni and cheese. I didn't want to have cheese on my hamburger. I didn't want to have anything to do with cheese because cheese in Kansas City smelled really nasty in April when you went there. It, just, it, was, it made me sick, and I didn't want to have anything to do with that. And so, uh, see, they heard me. I like it. They, the guy's checking on the air conditioning. Thank you. Um, so I didn't want to have anything to do with cheese, and then I got married, and my wife said, one time she made hamburgers, and she put cheese on them. I said, oh, I don't eat cheese, and she said, just try it. God is good. I mean, the hamburger was wonderful, the cheeseburger, now we're talking. That's what I'm talking about. That was some kind of awesome and then I found out that you could mac- make macaroni and cheese, and it wasn't with this dry, crumbly stuff that came from a blue box. She made real macaroni with real cheese, and I, yeah. And I went, aha, there's something else in there. Yeah, I, maybe your aha moment is totally different. Maybe it's, it's something to do with in, in your life that you thought you had a handle on it, and all of a sudden there was this light that went on. It's this aha moment. Well, Jesus provided an aha moment for us. Because at the time of Christ, at the time the New Testament was written, especially even in the Old Testament, but especially in the New Testament, in, in different ways, women were, 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 there was a horrible bias against them. In, in the Old Testament, sometimes they were te- treated almost like cattle you could buy and sell them. It, it was a horrible thing. But by the time of the New Testament, it was more subtle, but it was real. A typical prayer by a Jewish rabbi of Jesus' day went like this. Thank you, O God, for not making me a woman. Wow. Thank you, O God, for making me not a woman. That was the way the rabbis many times started every day out in their prayer. Or the rabbinic proverb. This is a real proverb that they said all the time. It is better that a Torah be burned than to be used to teach a woman. It's better to, to burn God's word than to let a woman learn. I mean, that was, that was a horrible thing. And you say, well, I'm sure glad we have those problems behind us. Yeah, we don't, do we? Did you, did you look at the headlines this week? 26,000 women in the military will be sexually abused. Well, they will be, there, there will be some sexual assault on 26,000 in our military this year. One out of every three women who goes into the military will be sexually assaulted before she leaves. We should be ashamed. Lieutenant Colonel Jeffrey Krusinski, who headed up one of the sexual assault prevention response units, was charged this week with sexual assault. He headed up one of the units that was supposed to be keeping this from happening. And you say, Pastor, this is Mother's Day. Why are you talking about this? Because one out of every five women... And with the number of women that we have here, one out of every five women will be sexually assaulted in their life. Some people put the statistic higher, almost one out of every four. There's still a huge problem today. And this week we have celebrated Amanda Berry and and Gina de Jesus and Michelle Knight coming back after a, a decade of being a sexual slave to a man 
And, it, and it's unfathomable to me why this is still happening in our country at this time. God is pro-women. He's radically pro-women. Jesus was radically pro-women. I can prove it to you. Who was the first person that Jesus talked to after the resurrection? Was it Peter? Was it James? Was it John? No, look. This is who it was. John chapter 20, verse 16. Mary Magdalene. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and said, and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Of all the people that Jesus could have chosen to speak to at that pivotal point in his life, in his ministry, right after the resurrection, he chooses Mary Magdalene, and that's the one that he talks to and, and does this amazing thing. Jesus' treatment of woman was an aha moment for our culture, for our society, for our world, and we did not get it, and we're still too many times as a nation, as a people, as a society, as a culture, still walking along, and on this Mother's Day, my call is that it stops now, and we start treating women the way God intended us to treat them, with love and respect and compassion. To acknowledge the strength that they have and the intelligence they have. And that we take this time today to be on the, on the forefront, on the cutting edge of being the people that God has called us to be. It ought to change the way we think, the way we act, the way we live today. Now let's look at, at two passages. The first one is, is Luke chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. This is how Jesus treated women as equals. Jesus treated women as equals. And I want to just look at three verses here, and, and these verses actually stirred some controversy. Look at Luke chapter 8, verse 1. After this, after what? Well, they've just had the, some parables. They've just been in, in a Pharisee's house. There's this woman uh, who came and wet Jesus' feet and with some tears. And after all of this, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. The twelve, this is the first time that the disciples are used in that terminology. The, the disciples that he called, Peter, James, John. You know, you know those. James, uh, the, the, the twelve disciples. You, you know who I'm talking about. The twelve were with him. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene. We just saw her. And Magdala is actually a word for tower. She is, she's uh, this person from Magdala. And, but that's also the symbolic of the towering strength, I think, that this woman had. She's known as Mary the Powerful One. This is a powerful woman. Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, or your, your translation may, may say Chusa, but it's, it's one or the other. And he was the uh, manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. We see three things here, how Jesus treated women as equals. Number one, they were Jesus-trusted companions. Jesus trusted these women. They were companions to him, and they traveled with him. There was a recent video series that was on uh, the History Channel called The Bible, and I had some people come to me, and they said, hey, did you see how those women, they were always there with Peter and James and John? And I said, yeah, that kind of bothered me. But I went back to read the Bible, and guess what? They were. When Jesus went in the, in the area of Galilee, it, it's an area that's not a huge area, uh, but when Jesus was in Galilee and he was traveling with them, these women traveled with him. Uh, verse 3 shows it that it actually did happen because it says, it lists some people, and then it says, and many others. 
again, for us, that's a, a neuter. We, it's a neutral. We don't know if it's men or women. But in the Greek, it's very specific that the many others is many other women. It's hers, not him's. It, it, was, it was women and not men. So the 12 were there, and then these women that were traveling, three are named, but other women were a part of this entourage. There's a, a Bible scholar by the name of Walter Liefeld, and he says that it was not uncommon for ancient cultic leaders to have women followers. Now, the cultic leaders were the, those who had all kinds of other religions, and the women many times were women that were prostitutes, they were, they were ill-treated. And because of that, that was, it, it was not uncommon for the cultic leaders to have women followers, but he goes on, it was absolutely unheard of for any Jewish rabbi to have women in the assembly. They just didn't come along with them. They didn't follow along with them. And even in the church services, they separated the men and the women. The men got preferential treatment all the time. Jesus did not do that. As he traveled with these women, everything that he taught the disciples, the women were part of. As he was, as he was traveling with them, as he was going along the way teaching, these women were a part of this crowd. And so, as we've always pictured Jesus with 12 men, that's not what the Bible depicts. The Bible depicts women following along with him from town to town. Who? Mary Magdalene. She was cleansed of seven demons. I, you know, I read commentaries when I'm getting ready for these messages, and one commentary said, oh, seven de denotes that it was uh, a, a full circle. It, it meant the, the complete demon uh, entourage. Another commentary said, well, seven is just symbolic for this, seven is symbolic for that. Usually when I read seven, you know what I read? Seven. There were seven demons in her. We don't know what kind of demons they were, but this woman was possessed, and she was, she was bound up by this, and Jesus came and can you imagine the impact of this woman that every day when she wakes up knowing that her, that her mind and her life and, and everything will be so negatively impacted by these demons and one day Jesus frees her from that, releases her from that. There's uh, Joanna and Susanna with her as well. What's interesting is Mary Magdalene and Joanna are specifically named in Luke 24, 10. It tells us that Mary Magdalene and Joanna specifically were there at the cross they were there at the burial, and they were there the first ones at the resurrection. You get that? Peter and James and John, the three closest of the disciples, couldn't make that claim because they left the scene at the, at the cross. John stayed longer than, than Peter, and, 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 but Peter, James, and John, who were, the, who were the closest three, they couldn't say that they were there at the cross and at the burial and at the resurrection, the first ones at the resurrection. And in fact, when, when they go, the women go back and tell the disciples, the disciples run because they don't believe the women. Joanna was Cusa's wife. Cusa Chusa was a, uh, a household manager. He was the one who had the checkbook. He was the one who controlled the money for Herod. This is Herod Antipas. This is the Herod that, that beheaded John the Baptist. This is the Herod that was, his father was Herod the Great, who killed the babies in Bethlehem trying to kill Jesus. So Jesus has, as part of his entourage, this woman who is married to the man who controls the purse strings for the guy who is evil personified in the kingdom at that point. Do you understand how much he trusted this woman to have her part of his entourage? Jesus let her travel with them. 
But, you know, it doesn't stop there. If you go on into the New Testament, we could look at any number of things. Time doesn't permit us to do that. But Acts chapter 16, 14 gives us a, an interesting insight. The first woman or the first person who accepts Jesus Christ in Europe is a woman. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. I mean, she was a businesswoman, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So when, when the gospel began to spread, when Jesus went back and said, go into all the world, who was one of the first ones that comes to know Jesus Christ? This businesswoman who was prominent, who, who had a lot of impact in the area, accepts Jesus Christ. Jesus trusted them. Why? Because he loved them. Jesus loved and trusted the women who went with him. Number two, they were Jesus' partners in ministry. Not only were they traveling companions, but they were partners in the ministry itself. Jesus traveled from town to town. That's what it says. The ministry would be about the same size as if you went from Shasta Lake City to, to Red Bluff. And, and it's about 30, mile, 30 miles wide at its widest point. So we can see it would be like going to all of the little townships around Redding and, and all of the little townships between here and Red Bluff and even a little north from here and going town to town. And these women were a part of the ministry. I mean, the entire ministry of Jesus, if you want to get to it, is just about the length from here to Sacramento and about 30 miles wide. We, we think of Israel as being this huge nation. It really isn't. But most of his ministry took place in, in, a, in a radius of about 30, 40 miles, or a, a diameter of 30, 40 miles. So the women walked with him. What did they do? Here's the best answer. We don't know. But they were part of his ministry. Day in and day out, they were there. And we know we have some, some clues in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 41. Mary and Martha opened their door to Jesus and let Jesus come and spend the night. But do you remember when, when they're there and, and the two of them, one is fixing the, the, the food, Martha's fixing the food, and what did Mary do? She sat at the rabbi's feet and she listened and she learned. This is huge. Again, the rabbis would never allow this. Long before Barbara Streisand and Yentl, long before, Papa, did you hear me? Uh, long before that crazy movie, Jesus was doing this. And he was opening the door and saying, you come in and you sit at my feet and you learn from me. And you take what you learn and you use it in your life. And long after that, not long after that, Paul did the same thing. He writes in, in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, look at what it says. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers, my partners in ministry, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ. And, and, and again, the word order in English is not that big of a deal. I mean, a lot of people will say George and Kathy or Kathy and George, it doesn't really matter. But in Greek, it matters a lot, especially when you're talking about ministry. And Priscilla is named first. And from what we understand in the New Testament, it appears that Priscilla was a better teacher than Aquila. The woman was a better teacher than the man. And she took Apollos and, under, uh, and others under her wings, and she began to teach them and to train them and to guide them. And, and Paul says, listen, she's valuable. In the Old Testament, God partnered with women. Uh, time after time, used them as very positive examples. Women like Ruth. Uh, th this Moabitess that comes with Naomi and she comes back home and through Ruth we learn the lesson of the kinsman redeemer that pictures Jesus Christ hundreds of years before he comes. This Moabite woman comes in and she shows us what a godly woman can do. Or think of in the Old Testament of Esther. 
Esther is this woman that's placed in a position to save all of the Jewish kingdom at a time when there were godly men out there, but God positioned a woman at the right place at the right time, and, and she saved the nation of Israel. This unnamed wife and mother that I read about in Proverbs 31. It's given as this huge positive example. And then, of course, some of you, some of you, the, the ladies are sitting here and they think, yeah, you know, this is all about that flowery stuff. Maybe you identify, identify more with jail. You, you remember the story of jail? Jail is in, the, is in the book of Judges, chapters 4, verses 17 through 21. Jail is this woman that, that Sisera is the, the, uh, the, the uh, Canaanite general, and he comes in, and he's running because he's losing the battle, and he says, hide me, and she says, quick, get under this cloth. And jail, this nice, petite woman, takes this tent peg and a hammer that you put a tent peg down into the ground, and she nails it to his temple. Literally what it says is she nailed his head to the ground. Or as Lisa Harper said, and I quote, being handy with a hammer isn't limited to the male of the species. <laughs> Guys, if your wife gets a really big hammer and a tent peg, I'm just saying, okay? God made these women partners in ministry. And it's listed in the Bible, and she's lauded as a person that God used in a crucial time, in a crucial way. Jesus trusted them and loved them, but Jesus also respected them because of their, their intellect, their abilities, and their, their partnership in ministry. Here's the third thing. They were Jesus' faithful supporters. They were Jesus' faithful supporters. It says the women were the ones who picked up the check. Did you notice that in verse 3? These women were helping to support them out of their own means. They picked up the check. I'm from the South. That's not supposed to happen. I, when I was raised in the South uh, with a mom from the South uh, because I was born in Knoxville, Tennessee, and my mom came from South Carolina, you ne the woman was never supposed to pay for a meal. If you went to the meal, the guy paid no matter what. Poor Kathy had to live with that when we first got married. Uh, we went one time out to a place, and when I got there and realized how expensive it was, I realized I couldn't pay for the meal, and basically I don't think I could pay for a full dessert. And she said, I'm not really hungry. Why don't we just share a dessert? And I, th and I went, yes. This is a woman after God's own heart. She saw the terror in my eyes when we went to the top of the crown, and I realized how expensive it was just to be in that restaurant. But these women defied that. They were the opposite of Zsa, Zsa Gabor. Zsa, Zsa Gabor one time said, marry a rich man instead of a poor one. You can fruit away your cash on shoes. He can buy the new roof when it leaks. And these women were just the opposite. It was, how can we spend our money? How can we support Jesus? How can we do this out of their own means? These were businesswomen. These were people. These women had their own funds. It wasn't that they were just tapping into their husband's funds. And, and again, you see that, that, that that's the picture here. They had finances of their own. Lydia that we just saw in Acts chapter 6, she was a woman who had a, a business selling purple. And, and that doesn't sound like a big deal. It was a garment in, industry. It was a, a dye industry. She was making a killing because you only sold purple to royalty. She was the Saks Fifth Avenue. She was the, you know, she was the Neiman Marcus of her day. She was, she was making a haul on that. And she came to know Jesus Christ, and she began to fund what God was doing. What am I saying? Jesus did not view women as weak or dependent. He, he's, he humbly allowed them to invest, to invest 
in expanding the kingdom of God. I just don't, I don't think we get that. God allows women to use their skills, to use their money, to use their abilities, to use those things that he's given them in a powerful way. Judges chapter 4, verses 4, uh, Judges 4, 4. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. What's crazy is there's a man who's a good general. And Deborah says, this is what's going to happen. She's leading Israel because he's a non-existent leader. He's, he's stepping back and he's not doing what he should do. And Deborah's leading and she goes to him and says, today God's going to give you victory. Go do the battle. And he says, I won't go unless you go. And she says, okay, but you're not going to win the battle. Somebody else is going to kill Sisera. And we already saw who did. Jael did that. A woman's going to do it. Jesus trusted women. He loved them. He respected them, their abilities, their intellect. Jesus valued women. Jesus was pro-woman. Jesus treated women as equals. Here's the second part. What are we supposed to do with that? I want you to turn over to John chapter 20. We glimpsed Mary Magdalene before. Let's go to John chapter 20 and let's finish up a little bit more of that story. It's the first Easter. Jesus has been dead. The disciples have, have scattered. They're, they're trembling. They're afraid in a room. They're afraid that they're going to all get rounded up and they'll be the next ones to be crucified. And what do the women do? Are they huddled with the men? Are they back there trembling? Are they wondering if they're going to be arrested? No. They're out there doing something just the opposite. John chapter 20, because Jesus trusted women with crucial tasks with crucial tests. Not only did he treat women as equals, but he gave them something important to do. John chapter 20, verse 1, says this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, the same Mary we talked about, seven demons gone, seven evil spirits gone, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. We know from Mark, John just tells us about Mary because he centers on her, but we know that there were other women with her. Verse 2. She saw that the stone had been removed, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Look over at verse 10. The disciples come, they see the tomb, they're, they're trying to figure it out. We, the, Peter has this aha moment, all of a sudden it clicks. We talked about the word, that literally a Greek word that says you see, but you don't understand. Later there's a word see, and it, and it registers. Peter has that moment. Look at verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Again, I just have to say, I just came back from Israel. I've seen a tomb that could be exactly this tomb. And we know from the, the, from the verbiage that as you look into the tomb, it has to be on the right. Very few tombs did that. Most of them were straight ahead. And I can just see the place where Jesus would be lying to the right. And there's two angels, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, verse 13, woman, why are you crying? You've taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Was Jesus playing with her? No. He wanted her to express what was on her heart. 
Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you can put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. He's already had a phrase. He's already had a sentence. Why did that do it? Have you ever heard someone who used your name that as soon as they used your name, you knew the tone of voice, you knew who that person was, and her aha moment clicked in? She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Of all the things that Jesus did, the, the saving that he did and the cleansing that he did and the freeing that he did, of all the things that she could have said to him, you who freed me, you who loved me, you who uh, died for me, all these things, what does she do? In that moment, she says, teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. And go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told him that he had said these things to her. Jesus treated women, uh, trusted women with crucial tasks. What tasks? Number one, the, the, the first task that, that he gave them was to spread the, the gospel. And I guess the question that we should come up from with, with that is, number one, what can I do to help? What can I do to help? Mary stayed behind the tomb. The disciples went back to their, to their home. They hadn't seen Jesus. They didn't wait to see if he was going to appear. They just knew the tomb was empty. Peter has this aha moment. He realizes that Jesus, it appears, has come through the grave clothes. The grave clothes are still wrapped in such a way that the body is just exited without unwrapping it. And he knows something has happened. And Peter knows that something's there, but they don't wait around. And Mary Magdalene waits to see what God wants her to do. She looked for a place to serve. And the women God uses look for an opportunity to serve, to serve him. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea have, have been there the night, or a couple of nights before on, on, on the night that Jesus was crucified, and they've wrapped the body, and the women were there, and they see that, and they see that 75 pounds of spices have already been wrapped into the wrapping. That's a, a typical way of doing a mummy. And why did they go back? Why did they go? Because they, they felt like something still was not right. They felt like something still needed to be done. They felt like it needed a woman's touch. Maybe the guys wrapped it in there and it wasn't even. Maybe they felt like they, they... But it says, if you go to the other Gospels, that they went home the night of the crucifixion and they began to prepare burial spices. They, they spent a couple of days working on this. And on Sunday morning they go. She just wants to help. The women were there. Why was being there on that first Easter such a crucial task? You say, you know, Pastor, you're making a big deal out of this. John Ortberg wrote this. Christ's resurrection is the fulcrum of the Christian faith. You, you understand fulcrum and, and the whole leather, the whole idea of a lever, and, and the fulcrum is the, is the point that everything tips. That's, that's, the resurrection is the fulcrum of the Christian faith. Our entire belief system hinges on that one event, that Jesus did not stay dead. God chose to entrust the first and best evidence of Jesus' resurrection to women. You understand that? 
God could have chosen anyone. He could have chosen Peter. Peter was the one who denied him. He could have chosen John, who's writing the gospel. And, and he could have chosen James, who would be instrumental later on. He could have chosen any one of the disciples. He could have chosen anyone. And he chose Mary to be the first one to talk to. He chose Mary to be the first one to go back and tell the disciples. He chose a woman. God is a God of details. It's the same God that decided a giraffe is going to have this long neck. It's the same God that decided a, an elephant's going to have this long trunk. It's the same God who decided that a zebra's going to have stripes. And he decided a woman could be trusted to do this. There's no chance that detail was accidental. And in the rest of the New Testament, we see the same thing happening. In Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Paul is writing, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. A servant of the church in Centria. The word servant there literally is deacon in the feminine form, a deaconess in the church in Centria. This woman was, was absolutely essential. She was, she was a leader there in such a way that Paul commends her. And he says, do you understand that she was, she was essential in that church? If you ever come to the point where you want to serve the Lord, the question you just ask is, what can I do to help? And here's the second thing that Jesus wanted her to do. Not only spread the message, but spread God's love. Why did she stay? Because she loved Jesus so much. She'd been freed. Her life had been changed forever. And the question I think that we come up with is how can I demonstrate, I dem demonstrate that I care? How can I demonstrate that I love Jesus Christ? How can I demonstrate how much he means to me? was Mary so upset? She thought his body was stolen. She thought that the person who had freed her from these demons, that the person who had given her hope for the first time in her life, that the person who had taught her for the first time, that had valued her, that had respected her, that had honored her, that had, that had lifted her up and, and brought her along so far, she thought somebody was just manhandling the body. She didn't know what was happening, but it just tore her heart out. Jesus transformed her life. She didn't care who knew it. She's standing there outside the tomb weeping. And she gets to see the angels and she gets to talk to Jesus. Now, sometimes we think of Mary Magdalene as the one that prepared Jesus for the burial. Because there's two stories in the New Testament. One about a Mary of Bethany. I believe that's the Mary and Martha. That's the, the, the friends of Jesus. That Mary anoints Jesus' body with with perfume for burial but there's another one and we mentioned it before in Luke chapter 7 a woman who's a prostitute comes to Jesus and she begins to weep over his feet and lets her hair down and begins to wash his feet and to pour oil on him Luke chapter 7 verses 37 38 says when a woman who'd lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house she brought an alabaster jar of perfume as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. That's got to be one of the strangest things that happens in all of the New Testament. you understand? I mean, first of all, if it's your feet, are you uncomfortable if somebody's weeping over your feet and then washing them with their hair? I could never wash anybody's hair with my, I mean, feet with my hair. Well, I could, but it'd be like a scrubby but if I could I wouldn't it's a strange story 
unless you're a prostitute. That Jesus has come and somehow freed from that prostitution. For the first time, that prostitute, for the first time, that woman that every man looked at with one single desire to abuse her, to use her, for the first time, a man came to love her and to die for her. And maybe it was inappropriate what she did. But the same hair that she let down to try to attract men to her, she then used to wipe his feet. It's an incredible act of humility, and it's an incredible act of love. And when we get to heaven, I would love to spend some time, a couple thousand years, just listening to the story, not only of her, but everybody else that was there, and, and just hear what was going through their hearts and their minds as she did this incredibly loving thing for her Savior. And you say, Pastor, what is the point? My point is that I don't know what loving thing it is that God wants you to do. And it may seem weird, and it may seem abnormal, and it may seem like something nobody else would do. But if God calls you to love him, do it. We could go on. We could go on with this whole thing about what are women supposed to do in the church. Uh, there are passages that indicate that a woman is not to be the senior pastor. I believe that actually a woman could serve in any capacity other than the senior pastor in a church. Uh, and, and, and please don't get me wrong, that's not putting women down. I believe that women are called to different functions. It doesn't make them less, they're just different. Let's face it, men and women are different. Men, uh, women give birth. Pretty sure we can't do that. Pretty sure I don't want to do that even if we could. You understand that. We're called to different functions. That doesn't make one function better than the other. Women can also walk in four-inch heels. Again, I'm not ever going to try that. That's just... Or it's like the little girl who wrote in the letters to God. Her name was Sylvia. Dear God, are boys better than girls? I know you are one, but please try to be fair. You know what happened with these women? All of a sudden, something happened that changed forever the way they looked at Jesus. And I'll close with this story. I had, a, I had an article from my daughter. I may or may not read it, but let me just tell you this story very quickly. The woman comes to Jesus. He's on his way to, to see Jairus' child who is dying, and, and he gets stopped because a woman touches the hem of his clothing, and for 12 years, she's been bound by this bleeding issue. I mean, that's, all, that's an embarrassing for a woman anyway to, to have a monthly cycle, but to have this thing go on for 12 years. And you understand in the Old Testament, anything that she touched was, was unclean, and anyone who touched her was unclean. But if she touched Jesus, he should be unclean. He's going to rescue a 12-year-old who is way too young to die, and this woman who has had this issue for 12 years, who's been under this bondage for 12 years, who's been there too long for that, stops him, and he says, who touched me? Why would he do that? Why would he embarrass this woman? Because he needed her to know that the order of everything has all of a sudden been radically changed. When I come in from working in the yard, my wife doesn't ever say it. She doesn't have to now. But there are certain towels and washcloths that I can use and certain ones that I cannot. If it's set out for the company, I am not to touch that. 
because no matter how much I think I've washed, when I go to the towel, I look afterwards and it's brown. Because dirty makes the clean unclean, right? Dirty makes the clean unclean. And for the first time, when she touched his hem, the dirty didn't make the clean unclean. The clean made the dirty clean. Because when he says, who touched me? And she finally says, I did. And she tells the story. He doesn't say, go back and get yourself declared clean. He said, you are clean. My daughter blogs. Let me read just a little bit of this. She wrote a, a blog. It's called These Square Pegs. She wrote a blog about feminism. She's a feminist. She says, I don't remember. Uh, she was talking to uh, our sons, her brothers, and I don't remember what my answer was at the time. I may have shrugged, but I won't easily forget the shock in my brother's voice when he realized the word that matched the things I was saying was feminist. When he came up for the name for what he had just realized, I was. That's our oldest son, Chris, when she was talking to him. I don't know how I became a feminist. I believe that I came into this world that way. That I was just born too busy squalling to notice I was supposed to act, uh, to start learning to keep my mouth shut already. As I've said before, I think the real miracle is how I avoided getting the feminism beaten out of me growing up as a preacher's kid in small town Texas. Really, in retrospect, it was that kind of pragmatism that allowed me to ignore the more nuanced, nuanced messages about how girls were supposed to act. If it didn't make sense to me and it wasn't an absolute rule, I just ignored it. So at church, I, I learned how Jesus died for all of us, how he loved all of us the same, how he came for the forgotten and downtrodden, and how status wasn't supposed to matter to people who followed him, because our human ideas of status are laughable by the Creator of the heaven and the earth. I learned how we were supposed to do our best in everything for his glory. I was taught these truths by both men and women in Sunday school and by both my mother and my father at home. As the years went by, the messages became more direct. I've been told I'm smart for a girl. I'm funny for a girl. I'm good at math for a girl. I'm handy for a girl. I'm easy to talk to for a girl. Until people started lining up to tell me all the things I was good at doing, you know, for a girl... I didn't realize that people thought that these, that, that these were things girls weren't good at doing in the first place. And I guess that's what makes me a feminist. Because I recognize that many of my friends, when they heard words like that, listened more to the subtext of girls aren't supposed to be good at that rather than the compliment itself. And she goes on and on about this. Finally, she concludes... Of course, it's not so straightforward in practice because for me, this is the entrance point to what has become a much larger interconnected series of beliefs about how women are systematically silenced, mistreated, and undervalued in our society. It's not simple at all because women are not equal in most of the world, and even in places where they are equal on paper, they're still attacked in a variety of insidious ways that range from being underpaid and undermined to, be, to being exploited, being silenced, and being raped. It's not straightforward or simple in any way when we try and unravel the damage done by abuses done to women, when we try to dislodge long-standing beliefs that justify harm to girls, or when we try to advocate for change based on the worth of a group of people others have written off as unworthy. 
It's not even simple sometimes to stand in front of the ones we love most in the world and admit this one gentle truth. Yes, I am a feminist. My daughter's not here this morning. I'll probably send her a copy of this CD. But I'm proud that my daughter says that she's a feminist. But here's my prayer. My prayer is that one day when I stand and say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, that what she just said will be synonymous with what I just said. That Christians will stand strong for women. That Christians will look at women the way God looked at women. That we don't have to use another terminology because by the time that we say to somebody, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Yes, I believe that Jesus Christ died for all people of all time, whether they're male or female, that we can say that and people will absolutely assume that we mean that we treat women with equality, with respect, with honor, with love, and that we value them as God does. Let's pray. Father, on this Mother's Day, we want to change. We want to change those things that somehow have gotten locked inside us so that we can be the church you've called us to be because, Father, you sent your untamed son wild in our imagination and different from what we expect. And you brought a message that turned everything upside down, including the way we even look at those people that you gave us to be alongside us, to be our partners, to be valued, to be loved, to be respected. So change this, Father. We can't imagine how you had to deal with us over the centuries as we have abused those that you loved so much. So change us. Transform us. May we be a church that gives you the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.